As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. In lots of places, being a sperm or egg donor is a lucrative choice. In America, it's one with few limitations. We look at the perils of an unregulated market and speak to a man who's unwittingly become a father to dozens and dozens of children. And in the world of opera, Female characters are often tragic or weak, and women rarely end up as notable composers. We examine the latest work by Missy Mazzoli, who's doing much to turn both of those trends around. But first... It's happened again. On Saturday, Turkey's president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, abruptly fired the head of the country's central bank. The reaction this week from international investors has been swift and mostly negative. The country's lira currency plunged to near record lows after the shock weekend ousted. This seems to me like the Ottoman deep state at its best. We've got the lira falling over 15%. What the heck is happening at the central bank? Naji Akbal was the third person to hold the job in two years. He'd only been in the post for four months. His dismissal came as a particular shock because his strategy had begun to address serious economic issues, including spiking inflation. Now there are concerns that Turkey is heading towards a currency crisis. Naji Akbal came into his post last November at a rather difficult time for the lira, but he quickly proved his mettle. Piotr Zalewski is The Economist's Turkey correspondent and is based in Istanbul. He is a capable bureaucrat, a former finance minister, and someone investors knew and trusted. And that was because Mr. Abal was something of a novelty in recent years in Turkey, a central bank governor who seems to have a free hand to take the steps necessary to store confidence in his bank, to stem the lira's slide, and to bring down inflation. What do you mean? What did he do? Well, he talked to talk and walked the walk. He promised and then did raise interest rates to combat uh, inflation, which reached 15.6% last month, a rather alarming level, and helped stabilize the lira. He delivered three rather significant rate hikes, totaling 875 basis points, that's almost 9%, including a rather surprise, aggressive 200-point rate hike last week. And these were all moves which cheered outside investors, but they also unsettled Turkey's president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who is an opponent of high interest rates. And his opposition to those rising rates is, is how it is he keeps getting through central bank governors. That's correct. Now, according to conventional economics, low interest rates breed inflation. According to Mr. Erdogan, it's the opposite, that in fact it's high interest rates that cause high inflation. And central bankers who do the job that they're tasked with and who increase rates when they see the specter of inflation get the boot. 
So now the central bank governor that Mr. Erdogan has installed seems to be someone who is aligned with his own unorthodox views on the economy. The new head, uh, Shahab Kavjoğlu, a former ruling party parliamentarian who is practically unknown to investors, has opined in the past that the key to fighting inflation is lowering rates. And the rate rises that came with Mr. Ogbal's tenure were, were great for the lira. How has it responded to this news? The lira has responded with a nosedive. The thing about low interest rates, which Mr. Erdogan favors, is that they make it easier for companies to borrow cheaply and to prop up the economy. But low interest rates also invite inflation. And inflation makes it less attractive for foreign investors to hold lira. So with high interest rates, investors are drawn to the lira because they get more on their savings. With the prospect of lower rates and higher inflation, which is the prospect that Turkey is facing right now, investors are likely to leave and they have been heading for the door. And that explains the carnage in markets at the beginning of the week. And all of that just on the assumption that, that the new central banker, Mr. Kavjolu, will, will cut rates? I mean, is that a certainty? It's not so much the appointment of a new central bank governor as the sacking of the old one. Mr. Abal was known to investors, and the fact that he was dumped so unceremoniously is really what unsettled markets. Now, if you asked over the weekend whether it was certain that uh, Mr. Kavjolu would cut rates, one could say yes, but... I think Monday's turmoil was so significant that it may have given Mr. Erdogan and the new central bank governor some pause for thought. And the realization might soon dawn on Mr. Erdogan that a country that relies so heavily on capital inflows and has been burdened with so much foreign debt simply cannot afford to set interest rates as low as it likes. But what would that mean in practice? Mr. Erdogan, if he's known for anything, is, is known for, in particular, a fixation on low rates. What could happen now? Well, he may just decide to push ahead, uh, to double down, and to impose new rate cuts. But that would come at a significant cost to the lira. Turkey might resort to stopgap measures, uh, spending billions of dollars through state banks in defense of the lira, to pave the way for rate cut next month. And there are signs that this is already happening, that uh, state banks are intervening um, to try to uh, stem the lira's slide. But this is very likely to be a losing battle. The central bank's foreign currency reserves are already quite depleted after a series of interventions last year. Um, and so seemingly, the bank has run out of firepower. And a related but more distant risk is that the government might resort to capital controls. Now, for most analysts, this isn't the baseline scenario, because in a country like Turkey, which relies so heavily on capital inflows, capital controls would be almost certain to bring the economy to a halt. They would also be deeply unpopular with ordinary Turks and the businessmen who support Mr. Erdogan. So all that makes them unlikely, but unfortunately no longer unthinkable. 
And so all of this certainty, I guess, is is a reminder of the danger of, of having a leader who has the hands on the controls of the central bank. I mean, what are the consequences of Mr. Erdogan kind of meddling so much in economic policy? Well, the upshot now is that many think that Turkey, which could have expected to have strong growth, even with high interest rates as late as Friday, is now heading towards both a currency and an economic crisis. Mr. Abba was doing a pretty decent job at, under very difficult circumstances. And his sacking was described by one analyst as the worst public policy decision I can remember in a country's history. And it has shown what I think a lot of folks knew already, which is that the central bank is hardly independent and that it is, in fact, an extension of Mr. Erdogan's government. Credibility has been lost and the already very difficult job of being Turkey's central bank governor has now been made even tougher. Piotr, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity. In the 80s, I was going to university and was uh, like any other college student lacking in finances. And one of my fraternity brothers told me he was going to a sperm bank. This man, who we're calling Michael, is a married father of four teenagers. Back when he was 18, he donated his sperm to earn some extra cash. I was young and dumb at the time and didn't really think the whole thing through. It was roughly $500 a week for a couple of visits. I did it off and on for four to five years. I don't know, over over the years, it was probably two to $300,000. America's sperm and egg donor industry is largely unregulated. That means rules on who can donate and how many times and how those donations are compensated are down to individual clinics. The number of children I brought into the world is kind of one of those things that changes all the time. In 2014, Michael heard from one of his donor children for the first time. Several more have made contact since then. I only know the the ones that have reached out to me. There's probably in the known range about 60 of them, but they pop up on the radar once or twice a month. It's more than three decades since Michael became a donor, but reproductive material still makes for a booming business. Now, the industry is facing increasing calls for more stringent regulation. Societal changes have meant that there is growing demand for sperm donors. Mian Ridge writes about social and cultural issues for The Economist. One of the sperm banks I spoke to, which is the, the biggest in the US, said that a few years ago, a majority of their clients were heterosexual couples who were having difficulty conceiving. And now the majority is made up of gay couples and single women uh, choosing to become mothers by themselves. And academics say that that's happening at quite a fast rate, that women are choosing at a younger age to become mothers by themselves. So that creates an obvious market. 
And is that demand being met with supply? So the US is one of the big exporters of sperm. Because other countries in recent years have introduced caps, Britain, for example, allows a sperm donor to only create 10 families. Other European countries have numbers of children, say 10. The compensation in the US is quite handsome. That and the fact that donors can be anonymous, these factors have combined to mean that the US has a sort of excess of sperm donors and therefore they're able to export to countries where women might find it more difficult to find a donor. So it seems as if the market is kind of regulating itself here. The supply is there, the demand is there, the compensation is there. Why impose regulations? So one of the reasons that there should be some limits, some regulations, is health. Say a donor has a particular condition and he fathers a lot of children in a short space of time. If he has a health condition that has gone undiagnosed or he has a health condition that he hasn't told the clinic he has, that creates the obvious danger that this particular health condition is is being passed on to large numbers of children. But there are other reasons to do with the sort of psychological well-being of children who are conceived in this way. There is a general feeling that adopted children fare better when they're told honestly of their origins as early as possible in life and are allowed, if they want to, to trace their birth families. You can't do that if you have hundreds of siblings. And you also can't do that if you have a father who has said that he wants to be anonymous. That's not likely to go well, even if you trace him using some sort of DNA testing website in the future. So in light of all that, then what regulation on the industry do you think is is best? So there are a few basic things I think that should be done. I think anonymity should be banned. Donor-conceived children do better when they're able to trace their families and Fathers should know that because of advances in technology and DNA testing, that's something that's pretty likely to happen whether they want it to or not. I think the number of children that can be conceived from one donor should have a cap put on it, as in many European countries. That means probably that the number of donors available in the US will go down, but I think that would benefit the children who are produced. And many people think that there should be more comprehensive screening for health conditions so that there are less likely to be court cases arising in future years when parents who've paid for these services find out there's something wrong with their children and it's inherited. But as you've said, there is plenty of demand there. If the industry should get regulated, or strictly so, that would drive a lot of people just to seek out their own donors elsewhere through matchmaking services and the like. That's true, and people already do that because it's a lot cheaper to use a sperm donor unofficially. It costs around $1,000 for one vial of sperm from a clinic. On the other hand, if you use a clinic, you can be sure that you won't in future years be held responsible financially or legally or in any other way for the child that's been produced as a result. If you use an anonymous sperm donor, you do open yourself to possible court cases in the future. So using a sperm bank is the way to do this. But ideally, America would introduce regulations that prioritise the psychological needs of the child in the future more than they do at the moment. Looking back and and seeing what my decisions as a a kid were, it's a little overwhelming. And it makes me think that if I had that knowledge and know what I know now, I could have possibly made a different decision. I was a teenager, I was 18. I didn't know what I didn't know. And and I think limits are probably a good idea, but Most of the outcomes of my meeting offspring have been very positive. You know, some of them do have 
more questions and they they want a relationship. They want somebody to say happy Father's Day to or or whatever. And it's it's nice that they reach out. I'm not tracking their birthdays though, so I don't have to I'm glad I don't have to buy them all birthday presents. Mian, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. The French feminist writer Catherine Clément characterized the fates of women in opera as they suffer, they cry, they die. That's how it's been for heroines ranging from Dido to Madame Butterfly to Lulu. So another opera featuring a submissive, victimized wife might seem an uninspired choice. But Breaking the Waves by Missy Mazzoli, currently streaming with L.A. Opera, pushes the boundaries of wifely duties. Missy Mazzoli works in a variety of genres, all the way from small-scale chamber works right up to grand opera. Boyd Tonkin writes about culture for The Economist. Her most ambitious work in that genre is Breaking the Waves. It's based on the last von Trier film, which was successful and also rather scandalous when it came out in 1996. And what's the premise of the movie End of the Opera? The film is set on a remote Scottish island, and it's about the marriage of a local woman called Bess and an incoming oil rig worker called Jan. And Jan is seriously injured. In fact, he's paralyzed in a rig accident. In order to keep their marriage together, he wants Bess to take other lovers, which she does, out of a kind of act of marital devotion but also as a weird quest for freedom. What Missy Mazzoli has said about Bess is that everyone around her is telling her what to do and how to act. She says that they're punishing her for falling off the line of acceptable behaviour, which in reality is impossibly thin. And if you like, what she's doing is revisiting that line and redrawing it. And so how does Miss Mazzoli convey the the, the bleakness of the the original work in, in the music that she's written? It's a very, very atmospheric score. It summons up the weather, the landscape, the skies, the storms of the Western Isles of Scotland extremely powerfully. But she's a very eclectic composer. She draws on all sorts of different musical styles. So there's an element of her work which is also quite close to indie rock as well. 
uses electronica techniques. And as well, you have the, the great gestures of traditional grand opera. So there's a lot going on. And as for the plot, how does this opera fit into the, the genre's long history? It certainly seems dramatic enough. This, I think, is really interesting. Of course, operatic heroines have starring roles, but they also have a miserable time of it. They tend to kill themselves, to be killed, to suffer separation and loneliness and tragedy. So what was interesting was when Missy Mazzoli chose this subject was, of course, that she seems to be choosing another plot in which a woman is in some way submissive, is in some way victimised. And it's what she does with that, musically and artistically, that really makes Breaking the Waves distinctive, I think. And is, is there something personal in there? Is she working against the norms of her, her own industry? There's been some research work on how often contemporary women, or in fact any women composers, turn up in the schedules of major companies and major orchestras. There were some American figures for 2019-20 which indicated that women accounted for just 6% of the works scheduled for that season. So you can see that it's not just operatic heroines that still have a hard time, but women composers also continue to have to fight to be heard. Boyd, thank you very much for your time. And thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. See you back here tomorrow. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds.